Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I am joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we enjoying White Sox baseball here in September? I'm not even going to talk about that. Our uh, rap Soto came in today for Montini. Um, I am so excited. I was in a bad mood today showing up to practice, and then our head coach was like, hey, Jordan, it came, and I, I got in the greatest mood ever. So I'm doing great now. I haven't watched a ton of White Sox baseball. Maybe that's another contributor. Um, but I'm mostly excited, excited about that episode. I'm going to be sleeping with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's good to hear. I, I've obviously, well, very familiar with what a episode is, but I've never seen one in person or gotten to play around with one. So I'll be curious to hear uh, what, what you think about that. But Duke, to answer your question, we are not enjoying White Sox baseball in September, which is both to say that it's not enjoyable and that can't speak for everyone, but I'm not really <laughs> watching them, at least nearly not the same way that I did earlier in the season. Like I'll check in here and there, but. It is what it is with them. You know, we we talked about this several times on other episodes, but we find other things to do with our time. You know, I just joined a travel tennis team. Like, we're all, you know, <laughs> it's just what we're doing. We're, football's back. I mean, unfortunately, if you're a Bears fan, but it's back. So lots of stuff going on, I guess. Did you win any tournaments, Nick? Uh, the first one is this week. So ask me later. Oh, look at you. Just, uh, just. Make sure that the ball is on the line if you argue it. <laughs> I, I, I saw John McEnroe on the uh, the Manning cast yes, uh, the other night. So, like, I, I had to go watch the highlights back. So, you bring it up tennis, just perfect. I don't see Nick getting into a tennis argument. No, I'm I'm usually, like, if it's within an inch, I give it to them. Like, I'm not the kind of person. And, I, and <laughs> I mean, if they're screwing me over, I'll say something. But I'm not, I'm not John McEnroe. <laughs> I need a golf with you where it's like, hey, is that good? Oh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that ball was on the line. <laughs> um, so to basically preface my thoughts on the Chicago White Sox in September, um, my college football team, the Wisconsin Badgers, lost on Saturday. My professional football team on Sunday lost to the biggest rival we have in a game we, we were supposed to uh, change the course of a franchise. Um about everything possible has gone wrong on that on that front so far, as far as football season goes. Yet, I am still happy that I have not been dragged down by White Sox baseball. So, if that kind of explains to you, like how I feel about where I'm at with this franchise, I'd much rather be upset about the Wisconsin Badgers and the Chicago Bears than waste any more time on the white Sox i need to except for recording this great podcast i love seeing you guys every single week jordan yeah you know but nick it's always great seeing you buddy you're um, awful but you anyway terrible. <laughs> you weren't paying attention i had to, i had to pop it in there um but great to hear gentlemen um nick hopefully you don't get tennis elbow uh we have quite a bit to cover in this episode including being joined by Sox on 35th contributor maddie spagnola but before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. So we have started every show for the last couple weeks talking about either the front office, Chris Getz, Jerry Reinsdorf, 
everything except for what's actually happening on the field. So we're going to turn it a little bit more on its head. And we're going to talk about something that's actually very relevant. And it is the long-term capability of one of our, one of our supposed long-term starters. And that is Michael Kopech. Um, I don't think it's any surprise to anybody that I'm a huge Michael Kopech guy. I always have been. In fact, my first article with the company was about Michael Kopech. You know, this is this is a guy that I've been pretty, pretty bought into for a long time now. And um, obviously, has not had the season that uh, he expected to have and that any of us expected to have, especially not me, um, a guy who was hyping him up to the moon. Um, he's been moved to the bullpen. He has been put in a role where they are trying to limit um, the amount of pitches he's probably going to pitch for the rest of the year. I think that has partially something to do with it, but more or less, I think they're trying to get some confidence back because last time we saw Michael Kopech as a fully competent pitcher besides spurts was when he was in the back end of the bullpen. So Laz, I'm going to let you go ahead and jump on this. Um, I know you're somebody who's been a bit of a critic of Michael Kopech in the past, so I'm sure you've got quite, I'm sure you've got an opinion on this. How do you feel about the White Sox moving Kopech into the bullpen? And do you think this is something that's a long-term move compared to a short-term move? I don't have a problem with it, mostly because I don't know what leaving him in the rotation to finish this year would have accomplished. He's not fixing anything by having to work as a starter every fifth day. Like You have your bullpens you throw in there, and those are more so touch and feel. You're not making a ton of mechanical changes bullpen to bullpen. You have your off days of rest where you're really not doing anything at all. And then you have your start day. It's four days in between those two starts. I don't know what you're fixing in that time. I I don't think it's beneficial. At the same time, I don't think it was uh -uh for any pitch count limits or innings limits because he's only thrown about 130 and he threw 115 last year. He needs to continue to build up. Um, And I think ideally he would have been built up throughout the course of this season. It just didn't work out that way because he has so much to work on. I also don't necessarily think he's going to be this lights out bullpen guy that everyone thinks he would be right away because his problems are he's given up a lot of home runs and he's walking a lot of guys. Those don't magically go away just because you move to the bullpen. There are legitimate issues mechanically, physically that need to be addressed. And it's better to, what I hope the Sox are doing and how I'm reading it is that it's better to start this now and get a month of work in with the, with the pitching staff or, or with the pitching coaches. Use every couple days as a reliever to be a essentially like live testing situation for things you're working on. And then enter next season still with the intent of being in the rotation. I think if you manage it that way, on top of the fact that most of the guys they've brought up have been relievers, so they have the ability to just shove Kopech to the back of the bullpen, pitch him every once in a while when it makes sense, um, and really use this month as live training for things that are going wrong. I like that approach better. I don't see what he would have uh, what would have been accomplished if he had thrown another three, four starts. Yeah. Unless they trade him for whatever reason, which I really don't see happening. I I don't see it as a long-term move either. I think it's what Jordan said, get a head start on working on stuff early and just go from there. But there are a couple of elephants, I suppose in the room with the Kopech discussion. 
One of them is the fact that he had knee surgery in the off season. And obviously that takes some time to recover from. So I'm not trying to make an excuse for him. I'm not saying that knee surgery means you start walking everybody, but at the same time, he didn't have a full off season to prepare. And it was clearly bugging him most of last season too. And, you know, I think, I don't think he was really full to go until like at some point in spring training, like he was behind all the other starting pitchers in spring training because he didn't have, you know, any, any base to work on there. So uh, I hope that he's healthy right now. I mean, you could never know when someone's results are as bad as they are, but just having a full off season where he's not recovering from a surgery might be a plus. And the second thing with Kopech, the second elephant, I suppose, is that he, I mean, I wrote about this in 2021 and it's one of those things where like you write about something and you hope you're wrong. And unfortunately I was right in this case, which is that they just did not give him nearly enough innings in 2021. I wasn't, I'm not saying I'm some genius. I wasn't the only one saying that, but in 2021, I was fine with the plan of him being a reliever with the occasional spot start. It actually worked out really well, but there were all these like 10 or 12 day stretches where he would have like zero or one innings. There was one in September where he had literally zero innings and he wasn't on the injury list. He was, he was healthy during that stretch at least supposedly. And there were many times where they got him out there for two or three innings and he looked electric and then they would just go back to one inning outings. And, you know, who knows, maybe he was a little sore or something. I can't act like he was perfectly healthy, but he looks great. His fastball was basically a bullet. We haven't seen that in a while, at least not one that could be commanded at all. And then in 2022, he wasn't that bad to start the year. It just kind of got worse as the year went on with the occasional flash here and there. And you know, that start against the Yankees that everyone always brings up at Yankee Stadium and, and the one against the Dodgers at home. Like he had, like he's Michael Kovac. We all know how talented he is. It's just frustrating because I can't pinpoint exactly what went wrong with him. But I think that it all started from not having the innings base in 2021 to work off of. So that in 2022, he was kind of limited the whole season. He only ended up throwing like 120 innings that year, in part because he was working off of 70 the prior year, but he should have gotten closer to 100. So that's really just an injury prevention thing that I'm ranting about here, but it's just frustrating. And I think that he could be a successful reliever going forward. Uh, Jordan used the term back end. That's certainly possible. Although I'd almost rather they use him kind of like they did in 21 in an ideal world where he could be a back end guy or he could go, you know, two or three innings at a time, kind of like early career Josh Hader. Like, again, I'm assuming a lot of things here, but I, I'm not out on him by any means. It's just a really, really frustrating, terrible year. No other way to put it. That being said, I think what they've done by moving him to the bullpen, I agree with Jordan. I do think it's smart. Honestly, I wouldn't even be mad if he didn't pitch again at all this year, except maybe one or two more outings. Like that, that would signal to me that they genuinely do not think this is a long term move, that we're just not sending him out there every fifth day to get rocked or to walk eight guys in an inning. And instead, we're using this valuable time that we have as a whole team with the facilities here in Chicago to improve as a pitcher, to improve on whatever is mechanically wrong, to improve on whatever <clears throat> mentally how you approach the game is wrong. That That is valuable time you can't necessarily just get over the course of the offseason because there's a shutdown period. And after the shutdown period, there's a ramp up period. And if you're waiting too long to address this you end up heading into spring training feeling like you didn't do enough this is a full month almost in which they have the ability to address things when he's built up and ready to do it in season i i truly think that the less we see him of him this next month the better because it truly means they're working on things and they're not just trying to supplement it by having him be a reliever so i I'm with both of you in different ways. 
Um, I agree, Nick, that we could discuss some of his injury issues over the past year. Um, Jordan, I'm also with you that I think uh, giving him, putting him in the bullpen for the rest of the season kind of gives him a bit of a reset and it allows him to test things out every time he's out there. So my main thing with, and I support this move. I, I, I genuinely do. I'm a huge Michael Kopech guy. I don't think I need to say that anymore. Um, my biggest problem, and I, I even brought this up in my, in my article about him when I wrote it originally, was Michael has this uncanny issue to get out of the first inning and to start, you know, kind of start strong. And really, you can see everything you're going to see in a Michael Kopech start based on the first time through the lineup. And it's it's become something that's almost glaring. And it, it's it's an issue that I've I've really been concerned about why it hasn't been addressed a little bit stronger. I don't know, maybe if it has been in discussions or maybe it's something they've tried to work on as far as mechanically in the first inning. Maybe he just comes out like a little a little lazy mechanically. It's it's hard to tell. Um, that's that's where I wonder it, um, the work that him and Ethan Katz do off the field. But obviously, that's something we're not going to end up hearing about from our end. But I really think the biggest key with having Michael Kopech go out there and pitch an inning at a time as it currently stands can really benefit on him being able to go out there and set the tone from the start, like one inning at a time. That's where it needs to go with Michael Kopech. We can't sit there and think about how far he's going to make it into a game before the game starts. He can't sit there and think about how he's going to deal with somebody in the second or third time through the lineup. He has to think about the now he has to limit his walks because he has more walks throughout any inning throughout what he's pitched this year than the first inning. He's has, he has 24 walks. His ERA is astronomically higher in the first inning than any of the other innings he pitches throughout the course of his start. And this isn't just a this season thing. This is a career thing. This is something that's been very obvious from the start. He is somebody that has been consistently starting slow in the first inning and not really being able to set the tone and, and consistently throw strikes. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a mental thing. I don't know if that is a, it's, it boggles the mind because as you said, Nick, there are so many examples of his talent and how dominant he can be when he's honed in that. It's like, it's not if this guy can be this pitcher. We know he can be. Like, he is there. And I know it gets really frustrating for a lot of people, you know, because they think that this pitching development cycle should be fairly short, especially with a guy who is as highly touted as Michael Kopech. But because of where he comes from, that's why you have to be as patient as the White Sox have been with him because it's there. For whatever reason, the biggest hurdle, it is by far his biggest hurdle, more than the home runs. You know, a lot of pitchers give up home runs. If we're being honest here, a lot of good pitchers give up home runs. My biggest hurdle has to be the first inning. For whatever reason, across the board, he gives up more home runs in the first inning. He gives up more walks in the first inning. He he weirdly has more strikeouts in the first inning, but that just shows how many pitches he's throwing in the first inning every single time. You know, whether he needs to cut down on the strikeout from the start and try to work more towards ground balls in the first inning so he can kind of get in that rhythm and get through that inning. But, like, I think that's why this is a benefit to him. And whether it works out or not, I don't really care. I don't care if he looks like shit. I need him to work out of this. And the only way you're going to work out of it is in-game action. And in a season like this, where we want Michael Kopech to be able to pitch more often and pitch one inning to be able to set that tone, 
I, I think it's I, I think it's only a good thing. And I think, you know, as you said, Laz, with where his innings are this year, I think he can afford to be able to do this type of role towards the end of the season. And I I think going into spring, the long-term thought has to still be that he's going to be a starter. I, I, I don't think you can argue that. But it's going to be getting over this hurdle where he cannot start strong. And it's it's a shame because you see those rare unicorns where he'll start the first inning, he'll strike out the side, and you're like, oh, boy, Kopech's in. You know what I mean? And you're usually in for a really good start at that point. But it's it's all about setting the tone early on and hopefully an inning at a time out of the bullpen for the rest of the season really kicks us in that direction. Yeah, I think that's a good point and something you said sticks out to me, Duke, which is you maybe didn't say this, but you alluded to it that he can't be thinking about, you know, the second time through the order when he's facing someone for the first time. Because when you said that, I instantly thought of what the White Sox did with Ronaldo Lopez a couple of years ago when he was a starter who more more out there in the open, he admitted he had focus issues. He used the word focus all the time to describe why he wasn't excelling as a starter. And while Kopech is more talented than Lopez, I don't think it's that crazy of a comparison. Like they're both former top you know, 50 or so pitching prospects in baseball. And once the White Sox moved Lopez into the bullpen, of course, it was more than just that. Like He had a big mechanical shift with Ethan Katz. He had LASIK surgery. Like There's a lot that went into his resurgence, but... Ever since then, that was uh, three seasons ago now. And other than like two weeks this April, he's been completely lights out. Like I don't know. I mean, he's not in the White Sox anymore. But ever since that stretch, he's been amazing this year, both for LA and for Cleveland since. So I'm not saying I want Kopech to become a one-inning reliever. I mean, of course, that would be better than being a two- or three-inning starter who gets lit up. But what I am saying is that there's definitely value to what you guys are both talking about, to having him just simplify things focused on you know three or four batters not just for the short term just worry about what you control your mechanical tweaks and whatnot and then hopefully build on that for next year so if they did it with Lopez I'm hoping they can do it with Kopech but also hoping that they can take a step further and either make him a starter again or at least a long long reliever and not in the traditional sense where he's a mop-up guy but in more of like a weapon sense yeah you know and I I agree I agree with that too and I think uh I think as somebody, you know, I'm a Kopech guy. I've already said that four times in this podcast. Yeah, wait, are you a Kopech guy? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I'm not I, I'm not going to sit here and ignore the fact that, you know, the, the clock's ticking. You know, like we need to we need to be able to see him get past this hurdle because otherwise, like you like you're saying, Nick, like we need to be able to utilize that talent somewhere, you know, and we did see good flash of that with Kopech in 2021. And, you know, like is I, I I look back at how the Milwaukee Brewers developed Josh Hader because something a lot of people who maybe don't follow the Brewers organization about as closely as I do per se from an outside perspective, Josh Hader was expected to be a, a top flight starter for them. Like there was no thought of him being a bullpen guy, but they had hit a point where their rotation was pretty well set and he was still fairly raw that they wanted to bring him in and have him have an impact in, in one way or another, kind of similar to how they treated Corbin Burns in his first season, taking him out of the bullpen and Corbin was lights out. Josh was so good at the closer position, as we see now that it was just impossible to kind of take him from that. And if we were going to hit a situation where we we're going to commit to Michael being that, um, you know, obviously, you know, we would have to salvage it if, you know, even if he didn't end up being that good and we needed someone in the bullpen. But like, it, it's a scenario where I could see the long term 
long-term viability of him being that back-end guy. But honestly, like like I'm like I've kind of explained throughout this entire argument, like if he can't get through the first inning and he can't get through one inning of relief, that's still kind of where this problem continues to be. So like I think really before we can decide where his role is going to be, he has to be able to get through an inning. It's it's that simple because if he's going to go out there and pitch an inning, we can't afford him to have the first inning, the inning like he has in the first inning. You know what I mean? Like we need him to be able to go out there and kind of shut it down. So like I do like the idea of being able to utilize his his talent any way we can. But as far as a long term spot in the bullpen, that's that's a tough sell for me too because I don't know if he can lock it down for an inning where he where he currently is in his development. I think we need to see him be able to lock that down, and I think next year the best ability to be able to do that would be able to see it in the rotation now do we have a bit of a shorter leash heading into halfway through the season if we're continuing to see the same issue i think you kind of need it you need to have that type of leash and you need to be able to salvage this if this continues to move in this direction but i don't know from you know everything i see on twitter and everything i see on you know people who talk about the white Sox. i just don't think a move back to the bullpen permanently would be as seamless as people make it out to be, I guess would be my, my argument on that. I think my only concern, this is my final point. My only concern with Kopech versus Lopez, which I think is a fair comparison. I think if Kopech ends up being a back end reliever, that ends up being a failure more on the white Sox part than Lopez, because I think you can point to botching his development right after Tommy John surgery versus Lopez. They gave him every chance. That would be my only concern with that. That's fair. That's fair. Which is why I think they may not turn to the bullpen right away. Yeah, well, because the White Sox are notorious on not being able to admit their mistakes until it's about, you know, two or three years too late. So, welcome to being a Chicago White Sox fan. Um, But, you know, kind of speaking of, you know, what we're looking at, because we're already talking about what we're looking at in next year, possibly in a spring training. Obviously, we're talking about the approach of a Michael Kopech. Um Chris Getz, we have to talk about him. We, we got to find a way to talk about him every single week, whether people want to hear about him. Um, Chris Getz did make some more comments into the media. Um, and one of the real sticking ones seems to be that he wants this team to get more athletic. Now, Nick, and I'll let you kind of jump in on this. Um, what what do you think that necessarily means? Um, I think the perception right off the bat, at least where I get it from, is we're kind of moving in a direction with baseball with, especially with some of the rule changes that stolen bases are a benefit, a lot more of a benefit than they were before. And something that's a little bit easier attainable and something that could really benefit teams that are struggling moving base runners. Uh, crazy thought. Um, what do you think of these comments? Uh, what do you think when he says we need to get more athletic? Is that kind of the same road you're going down? Do you think it's something on a defensive level what do you think about the athletic comments um, from Getz? Yeah, well, honestly, the first thing I thought when I saw the quote was that it's exactly what the Bulls said when they traded Jimmy Butler in 2017, whenever it was, and they've been like awful since then, other than half a season before Alonzo Ball got hurt and went missing. So, I mean, Ouch. just start right off the bat. That <laughs> it wasn't a great quote for me to read, but other like taking it at face value, it's – a bit strange, honestly, because when I think of the White Sox from an athleticism standpoint, but first of all, to be clear, I don't think of pitchers at all. I mean, yeah, pitchers can be athletic, not saying that, but I don't think that's what he meant. But I think of, you know, like Luis Robert, Tim Anderson, Moncada, like maybe because I'm just trying to think of the most athletic guys, but like, that's like a pretty good group to start out with. At least, not, not saying like availability or durability, but just pure athleticism. But then I kind of get it when you talk about like 
to having really slow players or corner outfielders like like Vaughn or Jimenez or um, formerly Gavin Sheets. I say formerly because he doesn't. He's still on the team. But he doesn't start that often. So I get it. I just think it was a lot more relevant last offseason, like when Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets were actually starting every single day in the outfield. Sometimes at the same time, that's when I think it makes sense to say, "Hey, we need to get more athletic." Now I don't get it as much because it's like, sure, there's nothing wrong with athleticism. It's just not one of the first like ten things I think of about what's wrong with this team. That being said, Duke, you make a good point about the rule changes and um, how they kind of emphasize the need for athleticism, especially like at infield positions. And I think that that's something the White Sox should prioritize. But they also kind of have that. Like Colson Montgomery is you know very very athletic. Edgar Carroll, he's a catcher. He, at least from what I've read, is the kind of catcher who is like sneaky athletic. So maybe that's why they targeted these guys. But at the same time, it's like, it's it's just all words, you know? Like, Getz can say whatever. It's just, it's not something that really registers to me. It's like, yes, I need athleticism out of this team. My first thought was Eloy Jimenez. And then I thought about it like, hmm. You traded Jake Berger, so you kind of solved the Jimenez problem. Whether or not whether or not you should have traded Jake Berger, you kind of solved that problem. Now you have somewhere to stick Jimenez. My next thought went to Andrew Vaughn. And you look at... It's the question of, is he athletic enough to play first base? I don't think he is. I think if you look at the numbers this year, he doesn't have the arm strength. He doesn't have the raw speed obvious first baseman is in the eighth percentile for outs above average as a first baseman. I don't know. It's almost like you got to pick the bat you like more. And I think Jimenez has at least shown he can be the bat if he can stay healthy. And you just, it's like, Hey buddy, you lost the battle. You're the DH deal with it. If you can do that, I almost think it, it ends up, do you trade Vaughn? That's where my head went to. And I think it's fairly easy to make that argument because now, like I said, you solved the Jake Berger Jimenez issue. Now it kind of sucks even more because it could have made sense to move Berger to first and Jimenez to DH, and that would have solved the problem too. And now it's like, well, maybe we traded the wrong guy to solve this issue. But if you're truly thinking about making the team more athletic, that that feels like the more natural move to me. Is to me, it's, he hasn't shown any improvement this year. Do you see what you can get for him and move on? First baseman are a dime a dozen. That that that's where my head went to. The more I thought about, you know, if if he doesn't show much more these next couple weeks to end the season, could that be the first person to see a change in, in terms of athleticism? Because right, you're not looking at center field. You're not looking really up the middle at all. You have enough athletic guys to cover that, even third base. I don't know where else to look for that other than Jimenez and Vaughn. And if you're looking at those two guys, I'll keep Jimenez. Yeah. Well, I think, I think just strictly based on the bat, you would have to, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm going to be the Jimenez defender, but you know, I I'm glad you guys kind of honed in a little bit on the first baseman on this roster, because now that Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams are gone, kind of hoping the death by a thousand first baseman, you know, offensive strategy that we had going there is is dead. You know, um, hopefully Chris gets saying this means we're not going to draft a first baseman for the foreseeable future outside of maybe the fifth round. 
You know what I mean? Like we need to get athletic players. And you know, like, like you said, last, like first baseman are a dime a dozen, you know, and maybe this is me looking too much at athleticism and looking too much at like young prospects and where I think they can move. But like, what, why can't you draft a great hitting shortstop to go play first base? Why can't you draft a great hitting third baseman to hit, go play first base? Why can't you go get a corner right fielder who maybe is not the most athletic guy in the world, but is obviously not a liability in right field to go play first base. You know what I mean? Like, I know this is a band name when it comes to White Sox fans, but look at how Cincinnati back in the day developed Adam Dunn. He played right field pretty terribly. You know, there's no, there's no denying that, but he was athletic enough and you were able to move him to first base. And then he just happened to have an incredible bat behind him. You know what I mean? I think that's the more ideal route when it comes to developing a first baseman these days, outside of just going and signing one. Um, unless you can get somebody like internationally, like say how we did with Jose Abreu, um, you really see catchers or first base around the league. That was not their first natural position. So like, I feel like when you draft a first baseman that has kind of a little bit lower on the athleticism scale, you're kind of pigeonholing yourself into that spot. So hopefully, you know, you know, and I'm not definitely not against trading and Andrew Vaughn. I think you guys both make good points. And I'm glad you brought up the first baseman, like I said, but hopefully if I can take a positive out of this quote and, make it work for me to, you know, in this magical world where the White Sox are actually thinking like I do. Um, maybe this means the draft strategy changes a little bit. Maybe we're trying to focus on more athletic guys, more guys that we're going to focus on their glove, no matter what position they're at. And, you know, we can end up just moving them to first base at some point. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that's a terrible strategy. If he turns around, he being gets and, Guts the scouting department. I have a feeling that that's going to mean broad changes to guys on the major league roster too, because he's going to he's that's essentially admitting this scouting department did not produce what we need at the major league level. We need a reset. I think that'd be the easiest way to show. We've talked about this before. What can Guts do? Gutting the entire scouting department would be whoa. This dude is serious about who scouts are bringing in to this system. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, for all I care, he can gut the entire roster aside from Robert, really. Like, I mean, we don't have to have this debate now. I know some actually want to trade Robert because they feel we're so far away and I get that. But my overall point is that Getz basically has a blank slate this offseason in terms of what he can do financially. I mean, unless he wants to sign like Otani or something and what he can do from a roster standpoint because the only people who I think are truly like unmovable are people like Moncada who have one year left. Like like no one who's here for like a super long time, even Ben Intendi. Like I don't think they're going to try to trade him because Getz loves the Royals guys and all that. But I don't think he was so bad this year that like he's some albatross. Like I, I don't love the contract, but it's not, you know, it's 15 million a year. It's not going to kill you. So for, for, for the White Sox even. So I guess my point is that it would be, kind of nice in a way to see Getz just really got the roster both because you know we get new players to watch but also because we'd get some good insight as to what he believes and you know his philosophy on like we're talking about Andrew Vaughn and whatnot so that would be one way to even in a few months from now just kind of see what he's all about but yeah Vaughn's an interesting one because his trade value could vary so much depending on who you talk to like last year he was 
throwing in potential packages for Sean Murphy. I don't know if that ever would have happened anyway, but I kind of feel like his star has fallen. I mean, I I think deservedly so, given his very mediocre year he's having. So, yeah, I'm just excited to see it play out. So I, for one, I will sit back in a couple months and I will really enjoy these conversations where we tried to find the positive and things like this, um, especially when Whit Merrifield is starting at second base, Salvador Perez is behind the dish, and George Brett is our new uh, minor league uh, scout. I, I just, I, I genuinely can't wait. Um, hopefully, we don't add a K and a C on top of the SOX in our logo. Um, you know, to really just drive the point home. But uh, speaking of Kansas City legends, um, we are going to be talking to Sox on Thirty Fifth contributor uh, Maddie Spagnola. She has quite a few opinions on the Kansas City legend himself, Pedro Grafal. Um, really, just a lot of great insight uh, with that entire situation. We talk a little bit about how she became a White Sox fan. Without further ado, we are joined by Maddie Spagnola. All right, everybody, we are now joined by Sox on 35th contributor Maddie Spagnola. Maddie, it has been a uh, wonderfully exciting White Sox season. Um, obviously, we all saw that you uh, kicked off your season with the Chicago Bears as well. How have the last few days been treating you as far as uh, Chicago sports? Um, down bad. I'm like a little embarrassed, honestly, overall. <laughs> I, th- I think uh, I think embarrassed is a pretty good way to pretty good way to term it, especially after uh, whatever happened at Soldier Field over the past over, over on Sunday. So, um, yeah. So you know, obviously, anybody who uh, follows you on Twitter or follows you on Instagram kind of follows like you know what you're doing throughout the course of the summer. Um, obviously you found yourself to a lot of White Sox games, whether it's home games, whether it's on the road, I believe you went to, you went to Denver, Kansas city, you've been a little bit everywhere, you know, to, for whatever reason, follow this team around and continue to, uh, run around and hand them money. Um, obviously there's gotta be some level of dedication that comes with that. So why don't you give us kind of a rundown? Like, how did you become a White Sox fan? You know, what's your story? Like what, why in the world do you support this team on 35th and Shields? Um, well, it kind of goes back to my grandpa. He was a huge, um, White Sox fan on my mom's side. He was a huge White Sox fan and all my mom's, uh, relatives were White Sox fans. And like every time at like family events, they'd have every White Sox game on. And I wasn't really big into baseball back then. I was so focused on basketball, I would say. Um, but I just started getting into all sports when I got to like high school and, You know, I just like was always so dedicated to the White Sox. And um, unfortunately, my grandpa passed away, but he got to see the 2005 uh, World Series. And I just one of my first memories is uh, like um, spending time with him and like Don't Stop Believing came on, came on. And that was like their song of the year or the like uh, playoffs. I don't remember exactly, but I just remember that. And then ever since I just like was, you know, fully bought in. Um, but I don't know, I'm, I'm just a big sports person in general. And you talk about me traveling, like one of my biggest goals is like, I want to see every baseball stadium. And if I get wealthy enough one day, I would love to see every NFL stadium. I just think that would be awesome. And I got blessed because my mom works for United Airlines. So that's kind of how I get to travel a lot of places. I got like friends and good locations. <laughs> so I got lucky there. 
No, that's cool. Um, I I didn't know the uh, the United Airlines thing. That's pretty cool too, as well. So you kind of have the uh, ability to travel around um, at a much lower rate. Yeah, no, I uh, I'm in a couple different Facebook groups about uh, people that try to make it to like every different baseball park or like every different football stadium. Um, and I always think it's just really cool to see that that whole journey kind of come together. So that's that's a cool goal. And you know, I mean, you're starting it at a young enough age that you know you could you could definitely knock that out within the next 10 years, if not, if not a shorter period of time. So sure. that's definitely cool. Um, yeah. So, you, I mean, you had brought up uh, the 2005 team and I, I was like kind of prefacing like with that, like don't stop leaving story. I believe it was like AJ Brzezinski and Joe Creedy went to like a karaoke bar during the Baltimore series. And that was just like a song that they just came up and started singing. And then that just kind of became like the, the theme song of that whole season. So like, I know it gets corny. I know it gets overplayed, especially on the South side of Chicago, but like, that's one that'll always kind of have my heart. Um, so I, I definitely like hearing that. Um, you know, you had talked about being, you know, a, a basket, you know, being really into basketball and stuff like that, you know, definitely doing sports. So probably, you know, really honed into this team within the last couple of years. Um, is there anything of recent memory that would kind of stick out as like that ultimate memory? Like, um, did you, do you like, do you have a good memory of like the playoff game? Um, that that we actually won at home you know like is there anything that really kind of sticks out recently for you so you know what's unfortunate is I actually didn't get to watch that game Um, I got to catch like the first two innings of it but I was playing basketball at the time and we had like practice I was oh I was so so sad Um, but what I do remember is uh, the field of dreams game and and during uh COVID, the 2020 season, I would say I like after the strike too, you know, I watched quite a few of those games. Um, that's when I really like started sitting down and just like watching like every inning basically. But I remember the Field of Dreams game and I was like sitting there and I was like, Oh, Tim Anderson's about to do this. And then he did it and I just went crazy. I was like, holy crap, and I really bought in after that. And I was like, we kind of have a solid roster too. You know, I really thought, um, you know, it could have done something with that. Yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to speak for everybody else in this panel, but I feel like Tim hitting that home run in the field of dreams game really felt like we were about to go. We were about to go somewhere. That kind of felt like a, a turning point. That was like the moment where we were finally on MLB's map. You know, I, I remember. Yes, I agree. Yeah, no, and like I remember, and this is just something small and nitpicky that I get with because I get really defensive of my teams personally. But like, I hated the narrative around the uh, around the Field of Dreams game and just how much the Yankees were getting hyped up in that game compared to us. When like, the White Sox are kind of the team in that movie. Like, if we're being just totally honest here, so like the Yankees hype up was just absolutely disgusting and being able to see us walk it off and also being able to see my boy Aloy hit a home run in that game was very great as well. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think you speak for everybody in that sense. It was, uh, it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a game changer. I feel like we were all kind of, uh, buckled into our seats to see how far this team would go. But, uh, unfortunately we met the, uh, the Houston Astros asterisk. So it was a real shame. Yeah. I was going to go to that game. I sat there, I'm sitting, I'm like, and the problem is I sat and said there was no amount of money that was going to keep me from buying tickets for that game. And then I looked at the cost. and I was like, I guess there is an amount of money. Um, <laughs> and then it, it, the, the walk-off happens and everything. I'm like, yeah, there really was no amount of money. Like it, it was stupid yeah. of me looking back. I'm like, 
it, it, over the entirety of this whole team as we start thinking about what's next with them and everything. It's like there was no legitimate reason for me not to go to that game. I kind of talked myself out of it, and then you see it happen. You're like, that is ridiculous that I let myself talk myself out of it. It's still one of my bigger regrets at, in terms of being an adult because, like, you had you had the ability to do it and you just didn't. So. Yeah, I mean, plus, can we discuss like just how sick that jersey was? Like, that was that is easily like one of my favorite Sox jerseys. Like, they they just remastered it enough from the original to really just make it look sharp. Um, yeah, but honestly, honestly, lads, as somebody who's gone to concerts and cornfields, oh boy, you probably didn't miss anything when it came to traffic. Like, it's great seeing that Tim Anderson home run until you realize three hours later you're still not out of the freaking parking lot. So. Might have dodged a bullet there. When I was at Soldier Field today or this past weekend, it was crazy. I had taken the bus because I'm a public transportation girl, you know, and I had taken the bus and I was like, okay, like 30 minutes. No, I should have just walked at that point. Like to get back to my hotel, I was like, why am I not walking? <laughs> the traffic was nuts. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's trainer walking anytime. I, I've learned that the hard way. The only time I will park at Soldier Field, and I did it last year for uh, the Thursday night game against Washington. Um, it's it's only because I have a buddy who lives right down Lakeshore, so like it is a five minute drive for me to go park for the rest of the night. Otherwise, like you will not catch me dead down there. I mean, I got plenty of buddies who tailgate down there, so like that's that's definitely the move. Uh, but kind of moving on, you know, I. I we've, we kind of jumped into a little bit of a different discussion there, but that's fine. Um, you are somebody, and I feel like everybody's kind of has an outspoken opinion of Pedro Grafal at this point. You, you, your eyes seem to pop every time his name gets brought up. Like there's like almost like a seriousness that comes out, out of you. What are your thoughts? Like, like just, just at the absolute bare level, how are your, what are your thoughts of Pedro Grafal so far in his tenure as White Sox manager? He is just the definition of soft, in my opinion. And, like, what bothers me, I think, the most is, you know, he was supposed to come in and be, like, this, like, uh, enforceful leader. And I think that's what bothers me is, like, I've had coaches in the past, and, like, I just got out of college sports. And, like, to see this grown adult not like use his like coaching power and like have some type of control over what is produced on the field, like really bothers me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it, uh, and you see it across like all sports. Like there's this like certain sense of like, you have the authority of this room. Like it's very obvious coming into the season that this, this team needed an adult at the top of it. And it just feels like we're just kind of getting to this in this same little run of Pedro just kind of, you know, beating around the bush with these guys, allowing people to kind of do what they want, you know, and I think the Lance Lynn comments, I think the, you know, the Middleton comments, I think those speak volumes to how this, this locker room culture really hasn't changed for the better, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, it's really disappointing. I feel, especially cause I was excited in a way, like I didn't know much about Pedro before, but I was excited. They kind of went outside of the organization and not happy about the Royal situation, but like, at least they were branching out and um, you always want to give everyone a benefit of the doubt, I would say. Uh, but for him to come in and 
like what stuck out the most to me, I would say that like showed that he is afraid to make any changes was not taking Tim Anderson out of the starting uh, as the leadoff when clearly he was struggling for so long. And when he finally made the switch, when it was already too late, like the season was clear, like, let's be honest, it was already done. Andrew was successful at the spot. And Tim Anderson slowly but surely like got improved over time, I would say. But like just like that, the fear that he clearly had of like changing like Tim Anderson being comfortable in the leadoff, like that just showed he's just he's not cut out for it. Yeah, you know, because honestly, you have to be you have to make those tough decisions. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I haven't been someone who's defended T.A. Um, at, at a lot of different points in the season, you know, and it's it's mainly just because of like, you know, we were just talking, you know, so highly of the Field of Dreams game, for example. Like, I have a lot of memories with that with Tim, but like, I'm I'm a fan, you know, I'm someone who covers the team. Pedro's his boss. You know what I mean? Pedro has to be the one who has to kind of, you know, step to the podium, even if it's an unpopular move and you got to kind of, you got to kind of take the bullet. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Moving Tim Anderson down the lineup probably isn't the most popular move across the board. You're going to have people who are going to defend it and you're going to have people who are going to hate it. But like, it's very obvious that somebody has to step in and show that there's accountability on this baseball team. That's something, you know, Jordan, Nick, that's something we talked about early on in the season when we were talking about how he can take control of this team. And it would be showing accountability for everybody. Cause I remember us having an entire episode, essentially talking about Luis Robert, him being held accountable for a uh, lack of hustle play at first base. Yet we saw Tim continue to be thrown out there at, at leadoff every single day with basically life crumbling around him. You know what I mean? So like, if you're going to hold players accountable, it has to be consistent across the board. I'm trying to, I I've been struggling with trying to balance the line between how he's held players accountable. Cause he, he really, in, in terms of performance, he hasn't when he's really laid into somebody it's been in regards to how they're playing with, with Robert getting benched. It was because he didn't run out the ground ball or he didn't communicate. It ended up being more so around communication rather than the actual ground ball itself. Um, with Colas, he's been on Colas all year for just not mentally being there for like, like I think a big part of that is too. It's like, everyone's like, Oh, he's only calling him out. No, if he's making the majority of the mistakes, he's going to get the majority of the criticism in terms of lack of focus. What I haven't really seen Grafal do. And I think it's kind of a larger point of all of this that, that you're saying, Maddie, is that in terms of, play on the field accountability has been minimal and I don't know if that comes down from the top in terms of the GM the owner or if that is left up to him to make those calls if it's left up to him we kind of saw well he'll move him out of the leadoff spot but he'll move him to second so he really didn't change much but we don't know if it was a team mandate no we are leaving Tim in the leadoff spot for xyz reasons that's always a hard part with managers too. You, there are a lot of teams where managers are there filling out a lineup card that was made by upper management. I think being a new first year manager kind of weighs in all of this for me too. Is are some of the things he does because he's first year manager? Is it because he doesn't want to step on people? It, it's 
it's a hard line for me to draw with a lot of this. I think the one thing he has been consistent about, but it goes along with everything here, in terms of performance on the field, guys aren't getting benched for playing poorly or guys aren't being benched for having bad outings on the mound. They're being benched for a lack of focus. Um, I think that's where he's been fairly consistent. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's fair, but at the same time, it's, it's just kind of weird because while it's consistent, that's the reason he's on people. It seems like he only ever calls out Oscar Colas or some random rookie reliever. Like there are a lot of veterans on this team that you could argue have moments. And I think it was Duke who alluded to, you know, Tim Anderson having similar moments to Luis Robert earlier in the season. Maybe not as viral, maybe not as egregious, but still moments where he wasn't putting in 100% effort. And whether it's like Jordan was saying, Pedro being a first year manager and not wanting to be, you know, coming in and being too extra when it comes to like getting on guys, but at the same time, it's just, I haven't been able to figure that out about him. Like, why is it that he's so comfortable calling out the younger players to the media, but to Maddie's point, he won't drop Tim Anderson out of the lineup and, or from the leadoff spot until it's way too late. And if that, like another example, that Yasmani Grandal story that leaked out around the All-Star break, where like, if, if that's true, like we don't, never really heard that much about it, if it was true that he like didn't want to be around the team because he wasn't playing the day before the All-Star break, like that's, pretty bad that reflects pretty poorly on the manager that Grandal, you know, seemingly didn't get any sort of, uh, I, I don't know what the word would be. Like, I'm not saying you suspend him for that, but maybe you like don't play him as much as you were, or you at least talk to him. Maybe something came of it. Maybe it never happened, but we heard, we've heard a lot of stories like that is what I'm trying to say. So there's probably some semblance of truth at least. And it just seems like he doesn't really have a good level of control over what goes on there. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think, uh, Especially, especially with the grand all stuff, like that's so hard to gauge. And Jordan, I just, I want to bring up the elephant in the room of like, I cannot wait until we don't have to hear first year manager anymore. Like, Oh dude, I'm, I'm so ready for that term to go out the window because like, and like I've used it, everyone's used it at least once. Like, but we need to get to a point where if Kerfal is coming back next year, which Guts has already made it painfully clear that he is, we need to stop giving him the benefit of the doubt on a lot of this, on a lot of these types of things. Like these are things that need to be handled internally. Like, and like, I, I agree, you know, and I don't want to like say anything about, about like a source of like where any information comes from when it comes to this team. But like, we can't have stories like the Yasmani Grandal, Tim Anderson story coming out. Like it, even if that happens, I don't need to ever hear about it. I don't need to ever know about it. The only time I ever need to hear about it is, like a retirement podcast, you know, when Yasmani's talking about it years down the line or something like that. If I'm hearing about it in the media within a couple months of it happening, that shows that there's a, a complete lack of control. And, you know, maybe that's, and this is me giving Jerry Reinsdorf way too much credit, but maybe that's why Kenny Williams and Rick Hunter are no longer there was because things like this were leaking far too often. These are things that weren't being handled in house. And while like, I just hate, I just said, I hated the first year manager argument. I will give Grafal a pass on that this year, but the second we get to spring training next year, throughout the course of next year, we can't have stories like this coming out because there's not going to be an excuse of a Kenny Williams leaking this to the media or a Rick Hahn leaking this to the media. Those, those arguments, those theories are completely out the window and these things need to be handled in house. And I think that's, you know, Maddie, I think you've discussed like your biggest problems with Pedro Grafal 
and kind of being like that guy to control the locker room. That's my biggest one is like things like this should never touch the media. These are things that need to be handled in house. Yeah. But like first year manager is still a thing. I, I do. That's the only big thing for me is keep that in mind. It's, it's a thing like Terry Francona hall of fame manager wasn't always good at his job. He got fired before heading to Boston. So like, Things happen where managers get better over time. And I think we're kind of losing sight of that. We might we might need to have a discussion about that last because I love Terry Francona. So tread lightly with my But he had a job before Boston and got fired from it. Yeah, and I'm sure the White Sox regret that. But it's more it's it's more so the fact that guys get better over time. And hopefully get better over time. And I think when you're looking at that, again. He was there for in, in for four years in Philly. We, Francona was there for four years in Philly as a manager. Got fired, then went to the Red Sox, was re, had, now as a Hall of Fame manager. I'm sure the Phillies regret it, but I'm sure he also learned things from those, those first few years that he's implemented now. Um, and I think the other big part of it, which I'm curious about for you, Maddie, is just this team's not good. I, I think that's the other side of it. How do you balance your eval of Griffal just between, you know, again, yeah, first year manager. Yes. He's made a lot of questionable decisions. How do you balance that evaluation against the fact that this team's just not good? Like, I don't think anybody's walking into this room and making this team good necessarily. So, you know, like my biggest thing is, and I, I guess I can give him, you know, an, an okay for the first year. Um, but, like, the roster itself is very soft, very uh, baby-minded, you know. Like, I, I'm just being brutally honest out here. Like, I, I, it, it bothers me to watch them because of, like, because clearly they're paid. Like, like the truth is they – most of these players got decent contracts, you know. Um, there's no denying that. It, it just bothers me how, like, there's just, like, a lack of hustle, a lack of heart. And Pedro maybe, like – Maybe the issue is that instead of them buying into Pedro, Pedro bought into how they act. And so it's called it's causing him to be like, you know, just settle for being comfortable on the field and like being comfortable with what's being produced. But if anything, there's it's it's gone worse since last year. You know, like the the non-competitiveness. Uh I, I will recall like there is this one play bothered me with Eloy. I know you love Eloy Duke. And it, there's a play, uh, it went viral on Twitter, and he, like, steps out of the box because he, like, I, I can't recall what exactly happened. He stepped out of the box already, and he, like, threw a little, like, hissy fit while he was walking. And, like, as a manager, I would just be like, okay, you disagree with the call, but how you reacted is not what we're going to do here. And you just see that a lot with some of the players that are um, like what we would call veterans maybe. And it just shows that like Pedro has no control, no respect. And I'll look at like, okay, Dusty, for example, like you can tell that whole entire um, like dugout is really bought into what he says. I don't think there's a single, maybe Aaron Bummer. I don't think there's a single person on this roster who is really bought into what Pedro has said. We don't know what he says. Don't get me wrong, but you could tell the vibe there is there's just no solid relationship. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's 
that's a pretty good way to put it as far as like a lot of the negatives with him. I'm just going to bounce this right back at you, Maddie. Um, you know, we've talked about a lot of the negatives with Pedro and, you know, possibly giving him a little bit of a pass with this year. What what does he need to do next year to really turn this around? Like what like where does your opinion of Pedro Grafal like flip on its head? Like what is what is what does that look like? What does he need to do to really kind of change opinion? Not only your opinion, but maybe public perception across the fan base. Okay, so I respect everything he's done with the rookies. Like, I, I, how he holds them accountable. Like, okay, Oscar clearly needs to go back down. Like, let's be obvious. So I respect that. But, like, what I would love to see was in, was it within the first two to three weeks of next season, say TA is – or one of our veterans is not, you know, performing at a high level. Do something about it. And I just think – Right off the bat, there needs to be a change within, like, the roster uh, or, like, within, um, you know, there needs to be a change within uh, bad performance. I think that is. And then managing the bullpen. I Why why do we keep putting Aaron Bummer out with bases loaded and zero outs? Man, you did not come on this podcast just to rip Aaron Bummer. This is a Pedro Grafal episode, Maddie. This you is a Pedro Grafal episode. <laughs> there, there's something about hey you can't blame me for that Laz. i did not tell her to do that uh-huh sure whatever no no go ahead maddie go ahead <laughs> no but aaron bummer is just an example but no truthfully like how he manages the bullpen um i think if i can see changes of how he does it within the first month of season maybe a little less i'll maybe i'll respect his what he's learned from this past year but how he manages the bullpen makes me physically sick. Yeah. Is accountability the biggest factor for you in like, what's an ideal manager? I mean, you've had, you've had coaches throughout your life where it's like, this is why I like X, Y, Z coaches. This is why I dislike these coaches. Um, You're a coach yourself now too. So, so you see there are certain skills that are important to you, whether it's as a player, as a current coach, as a fan of a game in general. Is that the biggest one for you? Are there other big ones that maybe you think Grafal has or that Grafal lacks that you would like to see him develop? Um, I think for sure accountability with the whole White Sox organization. All of us feel that. Um, But, like, I just kind of am sick of, like, Pedro constantly being like, well, you know what? We just got to go out there and win it. It's all about effort. It's clearly not. Like, it's not because he has a whole roster of players who don't, have any effort in my opinion. So I don't know. Um, I just don't like how he's soft. <laughs> that That's the best way I'm going to put it. Pedro is just super soft. <laughs> Given everything that you've talked through and some of the qualifications that you think are most important, I guess my final question to you would be, what's your general level of confidence that come next season, some of these issues that, I think the entire fan base has that you've absolutely pointed out here kind of gets solved and people feel more confident in Grafal's ability moving forward. Um, well, let's say my confidence is extremely low because if the organization cared at all about accountability, how are we not holding our manager accountable for anything? But instead we're automatically giving him another year. I mean, that's just my honest opinion. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it is looking like we are going down the road of the South side, Chicago, Kansas city Royals. I, I don't know any other way to put it. Like 
I, I know I know for a fact I'm gonna love seeing Whit Merrifield play second base next year, but uh Salvador Perez behind the plate's gonna be Stop mention, mentioning that in every episode. I'm tired of editing podcasts where I hear Whit Merrifield and Salvador Perez are playing it's next season. Two hit I'm, I'm, wit. I'm done. Doing I'm gonna this. buy you a t shirt in black and white when he signs with the White Sox because it's right, happening. Yeah, whatever. Okay. You can't you can't deny it at this Yes, point. I can, and I will. But I'm sorry, Charlie Blackman's coming too. Charlie Blackman and right field. Salvia catcher. It's happened. I'm done. I quit. Yeah. Maddie, you want my spot on this podcast long term? You can have it at this point. I don't know if I can deal with these too much longer. Dude, what? I'm telling you, like, I'm gonna it I'm gonna get you such a nice Whit Merrifield jersey. You're gonna love it. You're gonna, you're gonna wear it, and we're all gonna live happily ever you after. Suck, uh, Maddie. Uh, where can we find you? Uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, obviously, you've written a couple articles for us. Uh, where can we find what you're up to? Oh, probably Twitter. What? That's that's the part where you drop the, the handle. handle. Oh, she's fine. She's new to this. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, at Maddie underscore Spagnola. For all of it, I think, yeah. We we like to stay prepared over here on thirty fifth. All right, well, it's been it's been great having you on, Maddie. Um, definitely appreciate it. Hopefully, we'll have you on here fairly soon, whether it's the off season or whether it's in the spring training. Um, because we obviously are going to continue love walk talking about the Chicago White Sox. Um, but yeah, until next time, it's been great having you, Maddie. Well, thank you for having me, guys. So that was that was our interview with uh, Sox on Thirty Fifth contributor uh, Maddie Spagnola. Um, pretty pretty sociable girl. Uh, she always she always does a great job. Um, definitely somebody if you ever see her at a ball game, definitely uh, try to pick her ear as far as the White Sox go. She has no shortage of opinions on it. Um, definitely someone we really enjoy having here at Sox on Thirty Fifth. Um, but, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have this week for the Sox on Thirty Fifth podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com. Well, it's following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. Stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week as we cover another exciting week of White Sox baseball. Thank you and go Royals! <laughs> You're awful. Go Sox. <laughs> <laughs> that caught, caught me off guard. Go Sox. <laughs>